Hi, I'm Lauren. I'm Tia. And this is the journey to transformation. How are you? I'm okay. How are you? Good. You seem a bit flat. Yeah, I'm just a bit hot, I think. Okay. Uh, has summer arrived? Summer has sprung. Yay! Are you excited? Yeah. Need to get hey. stuff together and head on into summer. Get your sunblock? Get my sunblock. What yeah. SPF do you use? I use SPF 50. Whoa. And my, you know, I kind of have to, and I burn like really, really easily. I'm always just kind of aware that if I don't put sunscreen on, I'm going to be like super wrinkly when I'm like 60. I think you should tell people about your foot. (laughs) (laughs) I've forgotten about that. So like almost a year ago, more than a year ago, in fact, I was at the park at Greenwich Park and just out in the sun and I was wearing jeans. So kind of cut off jeans. So The bottom bit of my ankle and leg was out, but not the whole. And my legs are very, very white. And it must have been just the way I was lying or whatever. One side of my leg on the right leg burnt like really badly in the ankle area. And it was just like really, really red. And it took literally almost a year for it to fade. It's only just like faded away. Like I must have burned it so badly that it just gradually had to fade. It was a different color for almost a year. <laughs> so like, luckily winter was coming after that. So people didn't have to look at it. But I do even recall my dad and people being like, oh, did you burn your leg like six months after or something? Can confirm. Yeah. So, you know, I live, I learn and I learn again. <laughs> it's very odd. I've never seen that before. Yeah, it must have really burnt my leg. Honestly, <laughs> people wonder why I put on Factor 50. <laughs> she has one discolored leg. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I sometimes wonder like whether I'm more suited to living in the Highlands or Norway, <laughs> for example. I think um, that ancestrally probably yeah. you'd be better suited. Although I do think like the UK sun is really intense, like when it's hot. And I think I read stuff about this, like because of the curvature of the earth, like the sun is actually closer. Mm. So it's more intense. Okay. Are you sure? Yeah. Do we need to fact I check get, that? I actually get burnt more in the UK than I do when I travel. But let's fact check that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We'll just double check that. But also it's only sunny for like 45 minutes out of the year. So so probably that's partly it. Yeah. Like when you've been inside for ages and then suddenly it's really hot and you're outside, my skin is like, whoa. I really enjoy seeing drunk red British people (laughs) in the park because as soon as it gets really sunny, you all really love to like suns out, guns out, get wild and then bake in the sun, slow roasting in the park, just getting drunker and drunker (laughs) and then vomiting everywhere because of sunstroke and alcohol. I mean, it's that happens. Summertime, British summertime. Yeah. I mean, I'm wondering, um, we might have to edit this out because this could be terribly stereotypical, but you should probably go and check that out in Glasgow too, because it's a bit extreme. (laughs) (laughs) Well, remember when we, you, was it you that sent me the photo of like a bunch of Glaswegians and they were upside down in the fountain? I don't think Remember there was like this, the football. Oh, maybe. Do you remember? Yeah, maybe. Were they naked? Uh, yeah, they were upside down. And so like their kilts were upside. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> I think that was me now. I think about it. It's just a bunch yeah. of drunk bums and fountains. Were they sunburned? Yeah. <laughs> there we go then. <laughs> Summertime madness. I, we've probably offended quite a lot of people. Yeah, I'm wondering if. <laughs> Let's leave it in.
<laughs> it's kind of our jam. Yeah, true. Bleeding hearts and all. Yeah, exactly. What do you think? Should we leave it in? Yeah. I agree with all of that. Oh, thank you, Lauren. What? <laughs> Where's that from? I did not give permission for you to use my <laughs> voice to agree with everything. Play it again. I want to hear it again. I agree with all of that. Oh, my God. <laughs> I did not agree to any of this. <laughs> well, this is what happens when I do the editing and have the soundboard in the van. That's hilarious. So you can just do a podcast with yourself and just like intimately have me go, I agree with all of that. Yeah, basically. <laughs> this is for when we inevitably have a massive fallout due to creative differences and I just have to do a podcast by myself with you. I'm just going to take everything that you've said and just reconstruct it. Play it again. I agree with all of that. <laughs> I do not agree with all of it. <laughs> I feel the need to argue with myself. <laughs> okay, cool. Okay. Happy? Yeah. So what are we talking about today? Reparations. Wow. That feels like a fairly serious topic to dive into. Let's go there. Okay. What is it? I mean, in all seriousness, it's something that I feel like requires unpacking. I've heard of it being used more in parts of the charity sector. I'm also curious why it's now. So yeah, well, what actually does that mean? Reparations is about trying to compensate people for shit that's kicked off, particularly if you have been the one to kick that shit off or you've benefited from that shit kicking off. Right. It has like, because I think reparation, slavery, colonialism, well, at least that's kind of the associations that come to my mind when I think of reparation. And when I was reading up about this, a couple of words kept appearing, repairing, healing and restoring. Yeah. And I think that's quite an interesting triangulation to describe it as repairing past wrongs, healing people's trauma, restoring to former glory yeah, I was, I was like, what's that word yeah I, I mean yeah glory I guess the UN has five categories oh. of reparations did you know that no go for it mm-hmm. one is restitution so kind of what you've described there so the idea is to bring the victim back to their former state so it could be restoring them restoring their liberty for example or returning a residence or returning putting it right by putting everything back. The second is satisfaction. So it could be things like truth seeking or judicial and administrative sanctions, recovery in the context of like people, it can be like reburying people, which but there's damages compensation. So the definition here says the provision of compensation for any economically accessible damage. So physical, mental harm, material and moral damages. Or loss of earnings. Okay. And I think that's probably the one that we most commonly associate with reparations. And then there's rehabilitation. So that's like the medical, psychological, social services, legal assistance, stuff like that. And then guarantees of non-repetition. So basically, you're not going to do it again. Yeah, but that's the one I'm most interested in because how and and what does that demonstration of non-repetition look like? Because it's, I can declare I'm not going to repeat whatever but is that enough and I I don't know I'm kind of curious about like 
that one because I haven't heard about it as much as yeah. the other ones that you've mentioned. Yeah. Curious about what that looks like. I mean, especially if you're talking about stuff that's like slavery, for example, and we're using the kind of legacy of centuries of enslavement. When you think about non-repetition, how do you do that when the legacy of slavery is systemic? It still exists everywhere. So you can say, yeah, we're not going to enslave people, although that's not true because modern slavery exists. In some places it looks different, but it still exists. And But how do you have non-repetition when it's like existing within the systems and those systems are continuing to exactly. reinforce it? And we're all benefiting from it daily. So By we all, you mean? I mean me as you, in a white person. You all. Me <laughs> and all the white people out there are, are exactly that, benefiting from it daily. Yeah. You know, maybe subconsciously if we haven't started to do the work or understand our part. When I look back, just now at the definition, it talks about reforms to prevent future abuses. Government reforms. It just says reforms. Oh. That's the systemic part, I think. We already know the charity sector doesn't have necessarily the systems to adopt reparation approaches. Or does it? I think they're trying. There's some organizations that are trying to look through the lens of reparations. And I think that's kind of the the emergence of the new social consciousness or whatever we're deciding that this period of time is where people are just getting raked for being racist when they're going around talking about the social good. So I think that there is some recognition that not-for-profits have very colonial models, are traditionally very, very white-led and have benefited from white supremacy. It doesn't mean that they're like all shitty people, but that stuff, the undercurrents of all of that exists in our space as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's becoming a recognition around that as an issue and that as a problem and people are trying to address it. But I think they're adopting old ways of trying to do this thing without really looking, really, really looking at it. You're right. They're trying. And and maybe in some ways this comes back to one of the things you read was restoring people to kind of yep. where they were before the harm occurred. Or I think yep. that's what you said, right? Yep. What does that look like? I suppose at what level? Yeah. So I think that's stuff like land back movements. Okay. So we took your shit. We're going to give it back to you. I think it's it's more stuff like that, like restoring people back to where they were. So it could be that if they lost their job, for example, they get that job back. Right. Okay. It's like a reset button. Yeah. Okay. But how does that work when maybe things like slavery happened a long time ago? Who are you restoring it for? Do you mean, are people going to try and send me back to the dark continent? No, no, but but do you know what I mean? Like, and maybe these are complex questions in terms of that restoration. Yeah. What does it look like? And how does that restoration look different than it might have done 50 years ago, 100 yeah. years ago, 200 years ago? Like surely there has to be kind of an evolving restoration process too. Are you familiar with Black Wall Street? I don't think so. Okay. So basically there was a place in Tulsa and this is in the States. Where it's just a massive community of black people who were just fallen out of control. Everything was going good. 
and a bunch of white people just came in and started like attacking people, setting shit on fire. Tons of people died. Just really fucking horrible. 300 black people were killed, 800 injured and over 10,000 without homes. And it's described as one of the worst incidents of racist terror violence in U.S. history. It's interesting on the Wikipedia, it says perpetrators, white American mob. There were some people who were children at the time. So some of those people are now over 100 years old. Part of what they've worked out is if those communities remained intact, how much wealth they would have accumulated because it was a really wealthy black community. They were able to take their case. So the judge allows the lawsuit by the Tulsa race massacre survivors to proceed. And some of the descendants are now able to move forward. So this is a hundred years later. So as part of the reparations that they're seeking, so they're seeking damages and compensation, but they're also seeking this kind of like restitution piece because, you know, had Black Wall Street been unharmed, then what would the earnings of those descendants look like in today's money, I think is part of the kind of calculation in terms of what financial what the restitution and the damages piece looks like. That is a really tangible example, but I think there's much harder conversations being had about what that damages piece looks like. You are systemically benefiting from my disadvantage or my historical disadvantage. How much is that? I think is probably... 312 pounds a month for the rest of my life. So, <laughs> Okay. And where, what's that calculation based on? That's how much it costs to keep gas in the van. <laughs> I think that's why it seems so complicated is because people are like, well, how do you know how much a person has been damaged yeah. by what's happening or what has happened? I think it's a really good point. I think we're having this conversation more in the States because like that Mm. reparations piece is is much more tangible because of slavery. I think that it's probably much harder for British people to think about reparations in the same way. But I don't know if that's true because you guys did a lot of fucking shit. A hundred percent. And I came across a a couple of things maybe that speak to that. So former Tory minister, Rory Stewart, who was also the international development minister at one point in time. And he said that UK aid should be targeted to help the poorest people in the world rather than paying reparations in some weird belief that we're going to somehow undo 300, 400 years of colonial history by writing checks to people. So I wonder if there is that kind of in this instance, at least, the idea that charity or giving aid is in replacement of reparations. Question. Is it reparations if you also benefit from the giving? No. Then I don't think it is because that is a form of soft power, right? When you are giving aid, you're not giving it because you're like feeling bad about the shit you did. You're giving it because you're trying to, there's political gains for you, right? Like it's in your national interest to do so. So I don't think that the giving of aid could be reparative because at the center of it is national interest. And I don't think that philosophically you can give reparations if you also benefit from the giving. I also wonder if reparations can exist if 
the decision making around those reparations is through a colonial lens. Yeah, really interesting. Because the like for me, a model of reparations is about what I hold as valuable, what I need to be repaired. So I might not necessarily want compensation. I want things to go back to the way that they were, or I might want compensation as a descendant, but I also want yada, yada, yada. It's the thing that I hold that I think is important. But if I'm not making the decisions on where aid is spent, and inherently that system is white led, northern led. 100%. I vehemently disagree that (laughs) aid, the delivery of aid is a form of reparations because it is imbued with a colonial mindset that doesn't give victims of colonialism, slavery, injustice, systemic injustice and inequality, the opportunity to choose to choose how it's spent and where and why. So no. Yeah, completely agree. And I'm going to put this article um, in the show. It's called equalshope.org and it's a really interesting article and they pick up exactly on what you're saying and they go on to say, there's also some who argue that the idea of reparations is insulting or patronizing and perpetuates a narrative of victimhood, Mm -hmm. which is a little bit like the colonial piece that you're talking to. And it says, for example, Coleman Hughes, an undergraduate philosopher, I can't see. Philosopher? Philosophy major (laughs) at Columbia University testified at a 2019 US congressional hearing, arguing that reparations by definition are only given to victims. So the movement that you give me reparations, you've already made me into a victim without my consent, he told the hearing. Not just that, you've made one third of black Americans who poll against reparations into victims without their consent. And black Americans have fought too long for the right to define themselves to be spoken for in such a condescending manner. So a a kind of another angle, really. I disagree. I understand where this person is coming from. Yeah. Because it is... Because I, you know, we've always said you need to be able to identify for yourself who you are and what you want to be in the universe. But Mm. that doesn't mean that you should then not offer it to the two thirds of black Americans who do believe in reparations because the one third don't want to be viewed as victims. If you don't want it, send your check back. (laughs) (laughs) But how much is that not um, kind of similar to the colonial argument? And that people should decide what they're receiving in terms of aid and how they're receiving it. Yeah. And the same with reparations. Should they also not decide and have the choice to decide what that looks like? Yeah. I think if they send out one of those Google polls, (laughs) send a Google poll and then people can sign up for their reparations Mm. if you want it or not. (laughs) And then based on that list, then they divvy up the money. But I mean, if it's like, do, do you want an Amazon gift voucher or a million dollars, like, you know. (laughs) But also I think that like the thing that I'm not so keen on for that is the idea that I don't need to identify as a victim to know that I have been disadvantaged in some way and that somebody else has had an, has benefited from my disadvantage. Okay, That doesn't necessarily, like I don't then define myself as a victim but I think it's a recognition that I have not been given something as equal to somebody else. Mm. And therefore I don't like it. Like, I don't, I don't think that that means I'm a victim. I think it's just a recognition. You have to accept that there is systemic inequality 
and racial inequality as your starting point. And that doesn't mean that, yes, I am a victim of that system, but I don't identify as a victim. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I was actually quite surprised to find that there were arguments against reparations. (laughs) So in some ways, I feel very enlightened to understand that these exist in a space where we're not talking about reparations, that, you know, there is a nuanced viewpoint. It's not necessarily yes, it's a given. So I found that a very useful thing to be aware of. Yeah. And another thing I came across. Okay. um, (laughs) We just talk about this for hours um, because I just feel like I'm learning a lot and I feel like I learned a lot in in reading up about this. So it did also give an example of the German government who was reluctant to offer formal apologies or term aid payments as reparations. So it gave an example in 2021, Germany agreed to pay 1.1 billion for infrastructure development in acknowledgement of its role in colonial era, era genocide in Namibia and offered an apology. However, Germany refused to term this payment as reparations, much to the chagrin of Namibian activists mm. who argue that Germany continued to sidestep its moral, legal and financial obligations to the people of Namibia under the cover of aid. So, yeah, again, kind of aid is getting kind of washed into a little bit what reparations are and are not. Okay. How do you feel about what it's called, even if the function, the sentiment is the same? Probably I don't care, but I don't think I'm the right person (laughs) to say that or not. Like, I think it just depends on how much the acknowledgement of past harm Mm. is taken as as a real meaningful piece and I think it should be yeah so in some ways I think you know the payment and the reparations and compensation form or in this form as infrastructure development is can't be standalone like it has to come with the acknowledgement too and actually reparation can never just be one thing yeah it has to be four or five things as per the UN principles could be four, could, five, could be, be five, could be five categories, yeah. five. Sorry, um, but it's more. I suppose my point is more that it just can't be one thing. It can't just be an apology. I don't think that in itself is a reparation. And versus, I don't think just the money. Are you going to be so? The risk here, and we've talked about this before, <laughs> is like, oh, I've I've given to a Black Lives Matter campaign check, or mm. I've apologized to, or even I've given to a marginalized group. Or I'm yeah. supporting a marginalized group, therefore that's reparation. And so I think there's always the risk with these things that it's not e- taken as what it should be. <laughs> okay. I, I'm just kind of going back to the idea of like what a person values. Okay. Some people might just want an apology. That, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like some people know maybe know the value of admitting what was done. And just want people to apologize, like, fuck the infrastructure, whatever. Mm-hmm. Say you're sorry, because that saddles that person with the action that they took, with all of the consequences of those decisions, it holds them responsible for it. So I think that could be of greater value to someone. Yeah. I don't Seems know. a bit easy. Huh? Seems a bit easy. Not when you're talking about states and institutions, it may not be very well, easy. Well, yeah, I suppose the German example is one where yeah. it's not. I mean, there's loads of examples, you know, where states have refused to apologize for things mm. that they've done. Think about how big a deal it is when governments issue apologies for stuff. 
Yeah, right. Okay. And you kind of got me thinking a little bit about how hard it is when genocides happen to call anybody to account decades later and get any kind of acknowledgement of involvement, Yeah, let alone thousands of years of structural damage. Thousands. Hundreds. (laughs) (laughs) Just kind of behind our conversation, I want to give a shout out to a reparation toolkit that I came across. Okay. Is Um, that how I calculate how much you owe me? It doesn't quite have that calculator yet, but we could make a suggestion. Okay. It's called, um, it's by the Movement for Black Lives. It's called the Movement for Black Lives Reparation Toolkit. Very, very interesting. It covers history in really a huge amount of depth. And then it has activities all the way through. There's a couple of things here that I think are more group activities where it's like called four corners exercise and you have to like get yourself in a corner, depending if you agree or disagree with statements. Okay. What are some of the statements? So for example, reparations is making people who had nothing to do with slavery pay for something that happened centuries ago. I agree with all of that. Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I should have seen that coming. <laughs> okay, well, uh, where do you stand on that? Don't cheat. I disagree. Okay. Strongly disagree. Sorry, strongly agree, agree, disagree, strongly disagree. Oh, I see. I strongly, so that would be sort of the four corners. Okay. I strongly disagree because we've talked about this. We're benefiting from the system. Wait, read it again. So reparations is making people who had nothing to do with slavery pay for something that happened centuries ago. There is a bit of blurb underneath it. I can read that. Yeah. This is the entire economy and prosperity of the United States, along with the wealth accumulated and passed down by many corporations, institutions and families in this country is built on the theft of this land and the genocides of its peoples and on the backs and blood of black people with our stolen labor bodies, reproductive autonomy and freedom. And there's more. Okay. See, I somewhat agree with that statement. <laughs> I kind of agree with what they're saying. And this is where I, I mean, obviously they've made it to be like a slightly tricky one yeah. to do so that you have the conversations around it. So I get why the activity leaves some space for ambiguity. But the idea for me is that nobody People didn't have just because you weren't a slave holder doesn't mean that now you had nothing to do with slavery Mm. because you were benefiting from slavery. So no one is separate from that. Yeah. Okay. I see the the string here is, yeah. What do you mean by has nothing to do with slavery? Yeah. (laughs) And whether benefiting from it now means you did have something to do with slavery, maybe in an indirect way, yeah. but you're benefiting from it today. So yeah. I can totally see that. It's, and it's a good gray, gray phrase. Yeah. It's a nice, <laughs> it's a nice gray statement, but also making them pay for it is interesting phraseology. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That there's sort of an active piece in that. Yeah. Okay. I want to read the second one. Okay. It says reparations can be achieved through investment in disadvantaged communities or free education and healthcare for all. I think it can be because, you know, going back to those definitions from the UN, that's the rehabilitation point. So that's the social services and stuff like that. Yeah. So, yeah. And part of rehabilitation is also like medical, psychological, legal. So the free healthcare and stuff like that could be part of that. Read it again. Reparations can be achieved through investment in disadvantaged communities or free education and healthcare for all. 
I think because also that's like, so that's the rehabilitation part, but that also could be the restitution part now because you're trying to, by investing in disadvantaged communities, you're trying to bring, well, I guess it depends on why, which the disadvantaged, no? Yeah. I think there's some gray in there too. Okay. I mean, can I read you what they wrote? So they wrote universal programs are not the same as reparations. Reparations are owed to specific people and communities that have been harmed and cannot be accomplished through generic social programs or investments in communities. Oh, when I thought, did you say universal healthcare? No, I said free education, healthcare for all. Oh, I meant for all those people. Yeah, I think, <laughs> okay. I think to be fair, like the kind of wording here is yeah. that making you assume that it's synonymous. Yeah. I mean, I think they're just kind of saying that universal programs are not the same, like in case you thought universal programs was reparation. Mm. Universal programs are not the same as reparations. Number three, reparations should only be given for slavery. Strongly disagree. Okay, why? Because you guys did a bunch of other stuff in addition to slavery. And I'm talking to you, yeah, Lauren. I know. Yeah, <laughs> you. So no. And in the UN definition, it also talks about like human rights violations and stuff like that. So I don't think slavery is a component of that, but I don't think that's the only... What do you think? Oh, I've read... Have you seen the answer? Yeah, well, I mean, it's not necessarily the answer, is okay. it? Like, you, I think, you've read the answer. Yeah, well, exactly. I would agree, although I think I've come across reparations more in the context of slavery. Yeah. And so unpacking that and moving it outside of that, I know less about. And I think maybe I'd hazard a guess that that's the same for many others. Right. So I disagree with the statement, but I feel there's an absence of my knowledge. Because mm. there was also the language of reparations around World War One, which was like war damages or mm. talked about in the context of reparations. I know. Well. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. You know, yeah. shit was dodgy then. So their answer is the systematic exploitation, violence, theft and harm to black people did not end with slavery. It talks about the afterlife of slavery recognized by international law as the badges and incidents of slavery include centuries of policies and practices perpetuated by the United States government, individuals and corporations that must also be accounted for and should not be ignored. This includes convict leasing, sharecropping, Jim Crow, redlining, and the war on drugs. Do you understand what that means? Nope. <laughs> I definitely don't understand the... Uh, I don't know what redlining, but all of those things are anchored to policies that were like designed to continue to enslave people. I see. So the war on drugs has a disproportionate effect on black and brown people, mm. particularly black and brown men. Right. And it does so like... The criminalization of crack cocaine versus rich white people cocaine. Right. It's different. And, but it's interesting that it doesn't mention human rights violations or anything. So I do think this is more anchored in maybe not slavery, but race. Well, I feel like this is more anchored into the American context. Yeah, it is. It is. Yes. I think this is very much an American. Yeah. Agreed. Thing. I'm, can we look at redlining? Yeah, definitely. In the United States, redlining is a discriminatory practice in which services are withheld from potential customers who reside in neighborhoods classified as hazardous to investment. These neighborhoods have significant numbers of racial and ethnic minorities and low-income residents. Hazardous to what, sorry? Like hazardous to investment. Oh, to investment. Yeah. Based on race. Oh, okay. And income. Okay. Which sometimes come together. Yeah. 
it's how food deserts happen sometimes where there's whole communities where you don't have a green grocer or like a place where there's, you know, you've just got very limited access to certain types of foods or stuff like that. Okay. I didn't know that was the name for it. Yeah. Yeah. We learned something new. We learned something new on this podcast. Okay. Final one then. It says an apology from the United States to black people would satisfy our demand of reparations. Who's our? I don't know. Our as in the writers of this document the movement. Yeah. I don't know. I guess. Why are they centering themselves as? And they're called the movement of black lives or for black lives. Well, they didn't ask me anything. They didn't <laughs> ask me what I wanted. Do, do I only get half a vote? <laughs> yeah. Half a vote. <laughs> I mean, I'm guessing not. It says that reparations require more than just an apology. Reparations require an official acknowledgement and apology for harm and public education or memorial about the harm. Mm-hmm. That's the satisfaction. Yeah. And I hadn't really thought of the sort of memorial element. Mm. Compensations to a specific defined group of individuals harmed by a violation, including descendants as well as family and community members of individuals directly targeted. Uh-huh. Action to restore individuals' harm to the position they were in before. Restitution. Right. Action to stop the systems, institutions, and practices causing the harm. Guarantees of non-repetition. And changes to laws, institutions, and systems aimed at ensuring Same. that the harm will not happen. So I guess they're just saying that it they want all five. one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're like, it has to be all these things for it to equal reparation. Okay. Well, I mean, I'm in agreement. Yeah. Well, what would I want? What sort of satisfaction would I like? I'm in agreement. I like that that took us back around to the, uh, the UN principles. Although, I don't know, should the UN be leading on reparation principles? Are they called principles? No, formal categories. Formal categories. Yeah. Okay. But that's why I think that this is like very much American centric because when I think about, I don't know, I'm thinking in my mind, I'm thinking about like war crimes and the institute, the um, international criminal court. Mm. I'm thinking about those things. Yeah. And so I'm trying to contextualize stuff within that space. How is this showing up in the charity sector or not? I think this is part of the emergence of like the racial justice leads. Mm. I think there is a recognition that a lot of Northern based not-for-profits have deeply colonial models and are trying to look at how they're investing, how they're investing or deciding what their program is, programming is going to look like in different ways. I think this whole aim to decolonize the not-for-profit sector is sort of part of that thinking. I don't know if there's very much overlap between this decolonization model and a reparative model. If that makes sense. Are you saying it's the same? No, I'm I'm saying that they're different. I I think they're really different. So I'm kind of going back on what I was saying before, because none of the things that I see organizations doing, I can kind of square with those five categories, I guess. Yeah, that's kind of what I, what I think I meant a little bit. I think like decolonization is one thing, but to openly acknowledge your harm and how that's manifested and acknowledge how you're putting, restoring people back to how things were before. 
I, I don't really see that kind of conversation or I don't know what that conversation looks like in headquarters. Is it about intentionality here? Because when I think about, when I think about like, for example, the rehabilitation component of it and like providing access to needed services, I mean, I guess if your intention is to right a past wrong, then that exists, then that could be a form of reparations, but that's not how services are delivered. Cause like, what's the like impartiality stuff there? Like how, how are you doing that? Like across communities and in what space you're doing it in feels like you could never really be doing it through the model of reparations unless you just wholesale give people money and say, this is yours. We're sorry. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. So like an, an international not-for-profit can never be delivering aid services, development interventions, whatever, through the lens of reparations, because it's about, I harmed this community. I'm giving this money back. I'm giving this to you. But if you have a model of like impartiality and neutrality, how do you do that? You'd have to make decisions about what groups should have you're making decisions already about who your target beneficiaries are for example oh, okay. does that make yeah, sense yeah yeah i think i understand so what you're saying is to go through the lens of reparation is to acknowledge that you had a role and therefore you sat on a certain side of things yeah which goes against the principles of neutrality and impartiality kind of but then i think have we not come to understand and challenge the humanitarian principles in some way through the lens of decolonization and now reparation because ultimately you are someone who has done harm yes. and we always tend to put that on a government or yep. someone who's party to the conflict yep. as being the harm harmer the people who do harm <laughs> rather than an acknowledgement of the organization too. But there's the do no harm principles. Does that relate to now or in the past? Or I mean, how, I mean, maybe this is a whole new episode. How do the humanitarian principles and do no harm principles interact with reparation and decolonization? Because um, imagine a model, right? So like France, the UK, Great Britain go, hey, sorry, whole continent of Africa for that whole Sykes-Pico debacle. We want to acknowledge that we fucked a bunch of shit up by arbitrarily drawing lines across a whole continent and splitting people up willy-nilly. Saws, here's some reparations. But historically, over time, some people have benefited from that. So you'd have to pull out the people who benefited because this is the universal healthcare, universal education thing. Like we fucked a whole continent up. Sorry. You'd have to make decisions based on who benefited from that. Which also reinforces your power. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, How'd you do it? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, the, I did. This is a really interesting conversation. And I. I well, I'm glad you find it interesting. It's not as easy as just saying, you know, we're going to do something. We're yeah. going to give back. We're going to try and restore. Yeah. You know, because life, society, cultures, economies evolved, changed, and we're impacted by multifaceted things. So, yeah. and for me, it kind of goes back to a question that back in my degree, we asked 10 years ago was. Now you know how old Lauren is. 
<laughs> would would was you know what would the African continent have been like if there had been no colonialism? You know what it'd be like. What? Wakanda forever. <laughs> I'm curious what it might look like for an international organization, take your pick, to be delivering their work through the lens of reparations. Oh, so I have one. Well, an organization that's trying to do that. The Joseph Roundtree Charitable Trust. Uh-huh. That's one of my examples. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. Which probably means that like... There's only one? Yeah, there's not many. Yeah. Okay. And or they come up quite high up, right? And they declare that the roots of their wealth stemmed from slavery, colonialism, white supremacy. Mm-hmm. They undertook research and they acknowledged that the company benefited from colonial indenture. And then they go on to actually sort of list some initial actions Yep. So, you know, a commitment to sponsoring further research by the society to uncover more detail of that history, implementation of a new strategy for tackling power and privilege. Boring. Yeah, something in that doesn't, that could be for anything, I suppose. And then finally, a commitment to identifying, listening to and engaging with those communities directly to develop a longer term plan for restorative justice. And uh, now I'm reading this again, I sort of wonder <laughs> if actually... These are a bit more general. And, and whilst I feel a bit catfished, I started out thinking that this was a really good, res, you know, reparation idea. And actually, yeah. in conclusion, I don't think there's anything different there. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a catfish. I had a statement from the chief executive. So it says, as a trust with a longstanding commitment to supporting work for racial justice, we've listened to people of color within the charity sector who have urged charities and funders to examine their histories and tackle institutional racism. We've begun a process of reflection. Set of actions that they're taking. So looking at their grant making investments, governance and operations, and then they've made a commitment to identifying, listening to, and engaging with communities who have been harmed by their business. It feels like just commitments and strategies and chats. Yeah, which could be for anything. Shove that up your f***ing ass. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, pretty much. (laughs) Well, because you, like, I think what we were both looking for is something really tangible, not this, you know, thoughts and prayers stuff, right? Like it's, we've listened to people of color and what we're what we're committing to is strengthening our contribution by looking at these things and we're going to like stay committed to listening to people of color yeah well i mean shouldn't you be doing that anyway like yeah. how does that step into a space of reparation that seems like you know as you often put just not being a dick anyway yeah kind of approach yeah you don't get you don't get any points for that i'm sorry yeah <laughs> should we make our perfect organization Okay. Well, what a reparative approach could be. Yes. Ooh la. Okay. So let's go back to our categories because I found that really helpful. Yeah. Go. Okay. So I would say part of it would need to involve looking at the origins of how that, that organization has been funded traditionally is the first bit. So, so where the money comes from and has come from. So looking uh, into donor histories. Yeah. Yeah, that's and good. how they made their monies. Yeah, and if ha- you yeah. had that Coca Cola money, sorry, bye, no bueno. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, also from an environmental perspective, I think you should have dropped yeah. Coca Cola. Yeah, but I also think that somewhere in there, there needs to be a line in which you actively say 
to donors. We're following a reparative approach. We see your history. We know what that history looks like and we need to know that you're doing something about it. Otherwise, we don't want to work with you. Now, that is a really hard line, which is, I think, where a lot of the sector is not quite ready to go into because it risks not funding anything. But even crossing that threshold, one step of we've seen your history is what we know about it. What are you doing about it? Is still a conversation that you should have with your donors. And I don't think that's happening. I think that's a conversation you should be having out loud with your donors. Yes. Record it. If Coca-Cola gives me some money for whatever a livelihoods project, I'm using that as an example because I worked for an organization and we did a partnership with Coca-Cola. That almost helps you figure out where your target beneficiaries are. In terms of a reparative lens. Yeah. 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 Understood. Because people who were harmed by Coca-Cola, which are a lot of people, if Mm. you're thinking about some countries where you don't have access to fresh water, but Coca-Cola is fucking everywhere. But then how much is this like an INGO becomes a conduit for reparations in compensation form, which is that kind of synonymous aid reparation compensation. Like, is that a danger then? Like if let's say you're going with this approach, Coca-Cola as one example, but let's say the UK government is the other and they're like INGO, non-profit organization, here's a bunch of money. This is our reparations. Now go and deliver something with it. I think what you're describing is the organization as a vehicle for reparations under the guise. The risk of that. Yeah. But whereas I'm talking about an organization who benefited from harm caused to a community by receiving funds from that. So not a vehicle, but correcting, going backwards. Okay. So not becoming like a tool, but rather recognizing that they got some money through ways that weren't so good and then seeking to correct it. Okay. So for example, if you received some money from a family foundation who made their money largely through the theft of indigenous land, which everybody did, then you would, you're saying, look, we recognize that we benefited from this by taking this money. And so now we're, we're seeking to repair the harm that was caused to that community who suffered. And down that chain, we benefited from that. But by continuing to take their money? No, but by recognizing that you did. And now, and now cutting it off, cutting it off. But now that's your target beneficiary group is that initial community. Which you need other funding from somewhere else to yeah. deliver. Okay, cool. That's clear. I yeah. mean, I do, I wonder how that works with a state government or a state donor, because your target beneficiaries might be across 52 countries on the African African continent. But yeah, but I'm thinking um, about organizations. Yeah. We're building the perfect organization. So stop okay. going no, out of No, I know. I'm just curious, but I think you're right. Like this is a, a really good place to start. I agree with all of that. Thank Yawn. you. <laughs> <laughs> So I would start there. So I think like if you're going to look at becoming a not-for-profit that's taking a reparative approach, the first thing is like really investigating your sources of income. Where did that money come from? And some organizations do it already out of their like kind of due diligence stuff. And like, so it's why organizations won't take money from like Lockheed Martin or won't take money from tobacco companies or De Beers. Stuff like that. So it already kind of exists in that space. But that's not to say that some of these organizations that have some dodgy social stuff going on don't have, you know, this is the corporate social responsibility arm. They're like, 
reputational whitewashing, as it yeah, were. 100%. I wonder also, like, for an ideal organization, if there is a, a balance between that kind of getting your internal reparation lens in order, but also bringing an increased awareness to the public around reparations and how you as an organization have benefited from and operated within that system. Also using hopefully a more educated public in that area to hold you to account as an organization for doing that harm again and the government for repeating that harm again. So almost using the public as leverage of accountability in a way, but not obviously absorbing the fact that they themselves as individuals have benefited. So there are a couple of levels here. Yeah. Okay. That seems like a good strategy. Let's put a campaign together. Okay. And then we've got rehabilitation. So provision of medical, psychological, social services, and legal assistance. Mm. Is that about? I mean, it feels like it's does, it, it is exactly what it says on the tin. So going back to that same community that we've described, then part of what you do is what potentially connect them. connect them or bring services into that space. Right. So if it's a community that as a result of, if it's an indigenous community where a family foundation has through the chain benefited by through stolen land and that community has then been relegated into a, you know, redlining, eh? right. redlining, right. the new word we learned, then it's about putting those services into those, into that community. Yeah. That's a great shout. Okay. And also maybe depending on how big you are and how sort of your reach also elevating those organizations and their voices. So people become aware that they exist with the assumption that you might not know everybody that needs it. So just putting their voices into spaces where other people might hear about it is important. Is that then part of also the commemoration piece that like recognition that something's happened? So this is like the satisfaction category. Yeah. I want to see a public statement about an organization that's done harm and is publicly saying stuff about this. Yeah. But something better than the one we've just read. Sorry, something better than, <laughs> than the one we've just read a hundred percent. But I, I mean, it could already be there and I could be looking in the wrong places, but there is a particular organization that I'd like to see. If you've taken action, actual action and not just written a strategy that is dying a slow death in your digital repository, let us know. The one that's hard in this sense is like damages compensation. Cause like come back to that same community. It's like cash-based programming. You just give people money. <laughs> but it, like aid reparations? No, this is compensation. It's damages compensation. But in the end, like in the not-for-profit context, that's what I'm wondering. Is that, is that just saying... It's the intentionality piece, I suppose. Like, is that just giving people money? Is that like what cash-based programming could look like because you're effectively saying? Yeah. Or is it saying, here's how much we got from the organization that benefited from the destruction of your community. Here's that money back for each of you. Yeah. I but mean, then I, you're I, looking for another donor to pay for that. And the risk of, yeah, well, exactly. That's what I said before. And the risk of that donor also having some kind of dodgy connection. I mean, let me correct one wrong with another wrong. Or is it that you can only apply this model if you're a social enterprise? Because you're basically either asking one reasonable donor to pay for the bad deeds of another donor 
That is a, like, I'm just trying to envisage a world where the Swiss government is like, the UK government, you need to pay for this. And we're going to correct that with, I'm not saying the Swiss government is absolved of any. Is Emmental from? What's Emmental? It's a type of cheese. Oh, maybe. Like Swiss cheese with the holes in it. It's in Gruyere. I don't know, but Emmental also has holes in it. So I was just wondering if they were the same because they both have holes. I don't know, to be honest. There's another one beginning with E as well, isn't there? <laughs> uh, from reparations to cheese. Okay, yeah, we get there. We're fine. Oh, Swiss cheese is really good though. And so Swiss chocolate. Swiss chocolate is very good. I don't care for like Swiss cheese. It tastes kind of waxy to me. Okay. But not as waxy They're as... They have good fondues though. Yeah. I think a combination of Swiss, Emmental, Briere. Yeah. I like a cheese medley in my fondue. Yeah. Good shout Cheese medley. With a little splash of a dry white wine. Should we get okay. fondue after this? Yeah, probably. It's a bit hot though for fondue. Okay, we, we can figure that. Okay. So how do you do that? Because you could never take any money from any government who's had anything to do with Saudi, for example. Unless you're doing all your programming in Yemen. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> I'm just, um, I mean, <laughs> I, was just, I was just being like, well, what about, I don't know. I think, yeah, the social enterprise one is a good shout. I think you have to be a self-sustaining organization. So this is the demise of the not-for-profits. You have to convert yourself into a for-profit entity for the social good and give your shit away to fix all the ways you benefited when you were a not-for-profit taking money from dodgy fucking organizations, companies. There are some large NGOs that have like consultancy arms where they kind of- Like Oxfam. That's exactly what I was thinking. (laughs) I want to say it. (laughs) Right. So they have like a consultancy arm, which I presume is like putting out technical experts and having them like their salaries paid, I suppose. I don't know how much that gets put back in the organization, but there is also- So they're just flying a bunch of white people around, (laughs) whizzing them around. Right. (laughs) Um, But there are also mine action organizations that have a non-profit and a for-profit arm that fund the non-profit there. Yeah. The for-profit being kind of removing mines or explosives for private organizations or for states that can afford it, yeah. but they don't necessarily have the apparatus. Yeah. So, like so, the American government, you mean? <laughs> so then that like, we might need to cut that bit out. <laughs> what? This is fact. <laughs> then, so, so then that funds the non-profit bit. So that kind of loop possibly. Albeit there's still, depending on who your clients You're are. You're not breaking the chain though. You're reinforcing the chains. By who your client is for the for-profit bit, yes. Yeah. So I'm what, like you would have to, again, be sensitive of your clients. Yeah. But then you also have to, it's not just funding the non-profit bit, right? That's mm-hmm. not, that's one part of it. It's funding the non-profit bit, but also paying back all yeah. the other yeah, stuff. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. I think it's about really looking at the chain. It's your supply chain. Yeah. And nonprofits finding the capacity to look at that, not at that supply chain in detail. I mean, I don't want to like go into blockchain technology, but it does feel like there is, if you're looking at like digital ledgers, it does feel like there's potentially a space to do this through an approach like that, where you're able to trace money back up 
and down the chain down to the last pence or penny. Yeah, it's a really good shout. It's um, why people are in favor of cryptocurrency, right? As well, because yeah. it's got like a trace. Yeah. I think blockchain technology. So you're an organization, you are on the digital ledger. So you know where all the money is coming from all the way back. So we all just need to be using blockchain technology. It's a good shout. Okay. You need to go back and dig through all your stuff and figure out, do like in-depth investigation into how you got all your monies. But then what do you do about the people? Because part of an organization's currency are the minds that it brings in. So for example, if you go and work for an organization, it's not just that, you know, the organization received money in the form of like donations. Those donations paid for you and your white fucking privilege. Yeah. So now we got to fix you. But but then, (laughs) right. But then also like the spectrum of that in terms of how, how you may have benefited from it. So some people may, some people's wealth may be more obvious or kind of closer to some of you have to do a job share (laughs) (laughs) so so like but my point is like how you know that then does it become a little bit like we're looking into your history as an individual how did your family get your wealth and kind of then correcting it on a case-by-case basis like that and and then down to the person who works in the canteen or like the cleaner or the it you know what i mean like how, how far do you take that to summarize what are the things that we think should be an ideal reparation approach for an organization. Tier number one. Don't take money from dodgy people, governments, organizations, whatever. So if I'm receiving money from a donor, I need to know everything about what they're doing. Have you been selling ammunitions to different governments that have been used to slaughter civilians? For example, not thinking of anybody in particular, then you can't take that money. Excellent. Number two. When you know where that money has come from, you can then use that to target your reparative approach and target those communities. And number three? Campaigning, advocacy, influencing activities, and that is paired with your programming work so that you're looking to influence the public and educate the public, but then you're also working toward structural systemic reform. Okay. And number five? Your programming should be looking at that rehabilitation piece. So providing medical, psychological, social services, legal assistance to those same target populations. And then the next one is around this damages and compensation piece. So thinking about how you provide compensation back to people for the ways in which you benefited from that initial harm that was caused. So we haven't quite worked out whether that's just dividing up the money you made. Yeah. I mean, I think that one is incredibly complicated. So the final one is commemoration and satisfaction, which I think we discussed could come in the form of publicly acknowledging what an organization has done and bringing awareness to that in the public space. As a package, these, I think, are a really good way for an organization to move forward. Question, how can we take a reparative approach between the two of us? Because we take money from a lot of dodgy bitches. Yeah, it's really true. You know who you are. (laughs) Us taking a reparative approach is understanding the histories of an organization enough to ensure that that lens is brought into our learning and recommendations. Okay. And I think we probably should take a stand around having 
recommendations or some at least that have a reparative lens. Okay. Because ultimately it features in every evaluation that we do. We just maybe haven't brought it to the fore. So maybe we should commit to that. Okay. Stay tuned because we are going to spend some time on this and figure out what our reparative approach is both in this podcast and in our other work as consultants. We have a secret surprise for everybody after this, don't we? Do we? Yes. What's that? Why did we start this episode? Oh, (laughs) I forgot because it's been like two hours. (laughs) Well, we have a treat for you, everyone. If you've enjoyed listening to us talking about reparations and learning right after this, in just a couple of seconds, you can hear Fiona, who we met at Camp Quirky, talk about her approach to reparations. And it's a treat. Enjoy. The Runnymede report for Bristol came out that showed in very stark numbers the educational and employment inequalities Mm. across race and people of African heritage were really distinctly unequal, which was a big shock to a lot of the great and the good in Bristol who thought we were a very integrated right on city. (laughs) So to have that in our faces, in their faces, because I was just like, oh, hello, Bristol, I'm going to... Yeah. You know, kind of get involved in the periphery here. So a kind of strange mix of people decided to have a series of city conversations to try to address. So there was a guy from BBC Radio Bristol, the director of the Bristol Old Vic, which is very yeah. respected in you know, theatre, the editor of the Bristol Post, which has a certain reputation. The founder of Ojima Radio, which okay. appeals to Bristol's black population, I would say, primarily. Those were the main, I think those were the main folks. Mm. And so we had these four quote-unquote conversations, which were facilitated by the, the, the Radio Bristol journalist, shall we call him? And <laughs> the woman who I think is also from the BBC, I didn't know her as well. And the two of them co-facilitated and these conversations. So as a facilitator, I expect certainly by the 21st century that we know how to hear people's voices and how to turn ideas and experience into consensus and a plan of action. So I guess I was very shocked because, you know, that's the world I've been in for 40 years. Yeah. I was very shocked to discover, no, it's still a, you put your hand up <laughs> and, and the white bloke decides who, who gets who to, to speak, speak wow. and then articulates his interpretation because yeah. I was appalled that they didn't do better and that they hadn't thought about, okay, we're going to have these conversations. Great. But, you know, really how to make sure that people's voices were being heard. And I just walked in from nowhere as a nobody who knew no one and and watched and listened. And I was surrounded by black activists who had steam coming out of their ears. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> a, because of who was being given the microphone, mm. B, how it was being facilitated and see what was not being said and heard in this process. That should have been an incredible turning point for Bristol. There's the report. Yeah. There's the facts. And here we are as a city deciding how to respond to that. And here's some people influence and authority, the probably most widely read newspaper. So you've got the arts, you've got radio journalism and you've got the written media. Yeah. yeah. 
So by the fourth one, (laughs) I think there was this kind of general sense of we've been here before. Anything that's managed to be said in this forum has been heard already. And there was such deep cynicism. So that was a phenomenal six months, I think it was, introduction from me, induction, whatever you want to call it. And I made sure that I found out who are these people who were wanting to speak, speaking, saying, talking obvious authority and experience and longevity in terms of the amount of time that they've been saying what they've been saying. I was faced with the question by conversation four. Right. I'm I'm not black. I'm not an activist. What do I have? I have a successful company that makes, that's extremely frugal, thanks to our values as a company and probably a lot to do with my mother and my Scottish frugal upbringing. What could we do? Well, we can put our profits into some of these amazing initiatives that I have discovered about that are really working away doing this stuff. And so for four years, we've been putting approximately 250, 300,000 pounds into those organisations. And in a very random way, in a very uncoordinated way, in a very invisible way, because Mm. I don't want to say us and I don't want to be the white saviour or the yeah. you know the, the guilty white woman although I probably am you know <laughs> and I've researched the database of slave ownership and yeah. it, my surname is in there yeah so on behalf of us that have benefited from slave ownership I also yeah. hold my hand up so if anyone says why are you doing that I say because people with my surname have benefited and so I want yeah. to do my small bit it's been such an awakening for yeah. me and so humbling and yeah. so enthusing because there are so many people who, you know, from when they wake up to when they go to sleep are pouring their thoughts and energy and resource into reducing inequality. And so many of them are people of African heritage and so few of them are people like me. And that's, you know, that's another of the awakenings. Like when I, (laughs) it does really feel like a line, like I was working, I was out there, I was, you know, and then I started paying attention and going on Facebook and making connections. And I noticed that all my black friends and contacts in Bristol every day are talking about and doing stuff about race inequality. And then us white people, we're not reliable allies. We talk the talk and we want to feel better. You know, we'd like things to change and we'd like things to be more equal, but we don't want it to hurt and we don't want it to cost us. So that was a really salient kind of awakening as well. Mm. It's just seeing who's doing the work. We should be doing the work. We white people should be doing the work. And black and brown people should be able to just getting on with their lives, dealing with the stuff they're having to deal with, you're having to deal with on a daily (laughs) basis, which is hard enough. And we're not doing the work. And there's, you know, there's people out there more and more and more talking about the work that needs, we need to be doing. I'm also curious about the the kind of invisibility of your kind of journey in the reparation piece, because it's mm-hmm. almost like I want to share your story so that white people understand <laughs> how you've gone through this awakening to yeah. a place of reparation. But there's that, that tension, as you rightly said, about centering yourself yes. and this is my business. So, you know, there's that tension, right? Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's a tough one because I want to normalize what we're doing as a company. I mean, we're a tiny little right. company of two employees and half a 
Prada's and Associates. And I just look at the big, successful businesses and think, well, you know, if you looked at an order of magnitude at your profitability, what should you, what, you know, couldn't should you be doing? But even for other small businesses, and maybe they're not profitable. I mean, so many organizations that we've given money to have said, we've never had this experience before. And they're used Mm. to applying to foundations and the Arts Council and, you know, all of this hoops and forms. And and then they get a phone call from me saying, could you use £10,000? And they're like, wow, this is weird. (laughs) This is really weird. And I feel like they should be answering phone calls like that all the time. Mm. And so I was invited to do an article in one of the Bristol newspapers and I really agonised. So like, oh, don't use our name. I don't want a photograph. But then it's just abstract. So I think I went along that she encouraged me to at least use the name of the company. And that was the point of it. Like, I, I actually really do want other companies to think, oh, this is what we could and should be doing. I mean, the problem is I've got no formula for how you go about doing that. And I feel very ignorant about you know, every year between January and March when we get a profit forecast. I'm like, right. And so there are a few organizations that are doing absolutely awesome work in the arts. So I went to a um, an anti-racism gathering in the early days of post-city conversations just to listen. And I got the impression that a lot of people felt like, I mean, they would almost preface, you know, I've said this, I've been saying this for 30 years, but I'll say it again now. At the end, I went up to this woman who hadn't said anything, but was I could see was really engaged in the process. And I said, okay, you've had everything tonight. So a black woman, what would you say to someone like me about what you think is needed? And she hardly missed a breath. (laughs) Safe spaces where people like you can discover and understand the lived experience of people like me. It was that that simple. Yes. (laughs) And I thought, right, that's going to be my guiding principle. So helping to put oil in the wheels of organizations that are trying to do that and struggling financially became my guiding light. But how do you find them? Who are they? And so it forces you to be very much engaged and to network and to get the mentoring. So that's what the mentoring is. I've got a guy, so I'm privileged to call him my friend and mentor, Lawrence Hu, who along with Chaz Golding have created something called Cargo in Bristol and they are developing educational materials for schools primarily about um, African history cool. from pre-BC to the present day. Well, it's no small feat. Yeah. It's no yeah. small feat. <laughs> and they're, they're doing a phenomenal job and it's very high quality, online, free access. Yeah. So that's something that just unquestionably is deserving of support. And so he signposts me to people who are on the ground doing really important, valuable and underfunded work. And it's things like adventure playgrounds in St. Paul's yeah. and, you know, th- yeah, and th- yeah. things like that. But how I, you spread the word, you know, that's a really, yeah, yeah. that's a really big challenge. I think I really like the kind of random nature. Yes. Of it, because the space that we work in is very structured, it's proposals. Yes. Mm. There's no space for people's experiences and how that interacts with your due diligence, your whatever. Please don't ever structure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. People sometimes hear through the grapevine and they say, what's your application process? And I kind of like, you know, yeah. I'm stopped for a moment. Like, no, there, there really isn't one. Just say how it's going to help you make a difference and do 
more of the great work you're already doing. That's fine by me. And sometimes it's just the germ of an idea. I mean, what's really weird is the day after that wonderful woman gave me that guiding statement. I went to a performance by a group of six black women. They called themselves Black Women Let Loose. (laughs) And they were doing a performance. They'd been given a free kind of loft room at the Bristol Old Vic. To his credit, Tom Morris, the director of Bristol Old Vic, he really did take on board what Mm. he was hearing and seeing. He really did. The programming has transformed at Bristol Old Vic. And you see and you walk in the door instead of it being a bunch of white upper middle class, middle-aged people, very wide range, many days of the week. So they were performing Shades of Our Lives. Oh my God, it was fantastic. It was just fabulous. So it's been a a privilege and pleasure and honour to support them and be able to offer them sponsorship to keep developing and to take that work to other audiences. So that was just like obvious. I can believe that so, so quickly after (laughs) getting, getting that, there it was. Like, that's exactly what you're doing. And it's so necessary and so important. It was a 95% black audience. And so my feeling was this needs to go to a much more mixed audience. And that's not the subject, but you know how audience changes. I went to a performance at the Old Vic last week called The Meaning of Zong. And the audience was what was the Bristol Old Vic typical audience. It was right. probably 95% people that looked like me. And it really should have been much more inclusive. Yeah. So anyway, that's, yeah. But that's another story. So, so the, the art, the messaging, the narrative, the stories, yeah. you know, seeing that it is becoming more inclusive. I'd love to know what you think of, does it feel tokenistic that suddenly you can't buy a product or watch an advert or open a magazine without these diverse families, you know, and mostly mm. mixed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're always yeah. mixed families. That is true. How does that feel? Does that feel real? Uh, I feel like there's a bit of it that's a little bit disingenuous. I don't know at what point I'll stop interpreting it as like virtue signaling Mm -hmm. or I don't know when I'll feel that way. But I think that's just because I'm cynical and I look at these things through this lens because I want to understand what they mean in a bigger context. But I also know fundamentally that representation matters. So in some ways, the kind of analytical part of me is like, maybe it's tokenistic. Maybe they're playing. Maybe they're, you know, as a queer person, I'm often very sensitive to like queer baiting and people like doing their like big pride flags. And I'm like, but hang on a minute, like... Is this real or is this for this moment? So I'm really sensitive to those things. But at the end of the day, I'm not sure I I care that much because it's more representation. So I have to kind of split myself a little bit and say part of me that's analytical wants to understand whether it's authentic. But then the other part of me is like, it doesn't matter because now people, kids, adults are looking and seeing themselves, seeing the kind of plurality of people are now being represented in spaces. Ultimately, I don't care if it's tokenistic because it's there. I think if it becomes exploitative and you can see that the business isn't kind of reinforcing themselves then that's an issue but for the most part I'm I think I'm okay with it <laughs> you've kind of got to hope that maybe that tokenistic is the hurdle to the next most meaningful more authentic engagement, yeah. right kind of hope that that's the direction yeah I, I think what I've landed on is I'm okay with a little bit of tokenistic action as a stepping stone to greater authentic action because yeah. everything's going to be a little bit superficial as you're trying to figure it out. It feels like it would be hard to roll back on the the representation yeah, that yeah. we're now seeing in drama and billboards and yeah. the media. 
And one thing that my company does is we sponsor, uh, there's a bunch of homeschools really kind of mushroomed, blossomed around Bristol. And we offer bursaries you to are. kids of African heritage. Yeah. You know, however that's, again, there's no forms, there's yeah. no due diligence, <laughs> yeah. whoever I don't. And I feel very torn about that. Yeah. But again, you know, I know about financial disparity and I see these homeschools, they are fee paying yeah. out of necessity because yeah. our government hasn't decided to value them. And therefore, I again, I see this as reparations. I see this as my yeah. responsibility. But how do you present that yeah. in a way that is respectful? It's really hard to differentiate between white saviorism and using your power yes. to open the door for other people. And I think the distinction has to do with attitude and what you center. And so immediately when you were like, I don't want to center my company, just do it invisibly. I don't want to do any of this stuff. I think that's like the hallmark for me. You are using your power in a positive way to make amends for yes. <laughs> historical things and the ways in which some people have benefited from trading of slaves. I think it has to do with like how you're coming into that space and how you're feeling about this space. Because I've certainly encountered people who use their power and, and have this kind of posture of see what I did for them and mm -hmm. they yes. and this kind of otherizing language as opposed mm -hmm. to like, look, I'm constantly fucking up because that's just the nature of complex social dynamics. Historically, I fucked it up, but I'm going to try every day to fuck it up less and less and less and less and less. <laughs> and I think that that's the biggest distinction for me is that the attitude of people that bring to the space. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. And I also think it's how far you go through with your intention. So we seen a lot of, or I've seen a lot of white people that say, I'm going to give up my C, but then they don't actually give up their C, you know? So it's almost like, again, a bit tokenistic. They're mm. very, you know, I want to do this. I'm saying I'm doing, I'm making you all aware that I'm thinking about this mm. on kind of like a front perspective, but they're not actually giving up their seat and then actually just talking. <laughs> Liza, my other daughter, she asked me the other day, she said, somebody's asked me, why are you providing bursaries for black people and not Asian people? So on the one hand, it's arbitrary, but it's also, I'm very clear. I kind of use the Runnymede report because it's full of numbers yeah. <laughs> and yeah. evidence. Yeah. And the disparity is very clear. It's people of, of African and Caribbean yeah. descent. So you draw a line. That's where I've drawn the line. But I suddenly felt all kind of, yeah, like, <laughs> how do I justify it? Is it exclusive? Is it, and then I don't want to make big speeches about reparations, you know, yeah. but I said, well, it's, it's reparations funding that was my like one liner yeah. says, that's not enough I mean that feels like enough. <laughs> yeah it feels like enough I, I think that there's always going to be those questions and I think there's always that dynamic of like ethnic groups being put against each other by virtue of how organizations choose to focus attention or focus their um, support or things like that so I do think that to a certain extent questions like that don't go away but having that sort of singular focus piece of look statistically we're looking at a particular population because they've been systematically disadvantaged and has historically disadvantaged from my perspective. So that kind of like reparations piece is a really good focusing lens. Using the facts, I think, is really wise. You know, if it was ever to switch the other way around, then... Uh, and well, the I mean, I know that we, we write royally screwed up India. <laughs> yeah. We wreaked havoc, you yeah. know, with our... We can't even call it benign. I mean, and, and it's great, you know, the more that comes out about the empire and yeah. <laughs> uh, what was really going on and what we yeah. really got out of it. Yeah 
the better it is. But yeah, so I and I think that there's space that you know one of the things that we see organizations struggle with in ours is feeling that they have to do everything or mm. feeling this pressure to do everything because in a whole universe of ways in which people are systematically disenfranchised, there's only so much any one organization, any one individual can do, and in some ways that's that's what's really beautiful about creating networks and creating mutually supportive organizational structures and connections with communities who are doing similar things. So for me, the thing wouldn't be, okay, now you need to focus on the South Asian community and now you need to do, like, it wouldn't be that. It would be like, this is what you're focusing on. So, you know, are there organizations or there businesses that are doing something similar that you can create this network with? And like, as now this sort of beehive of amazing business owners, philanthropists, just good white people or good people doing things <laughs> for non-white people. <laughs> what now this is a network that's addressing things in a kind of comprehensive way. But I think when organizations or when people start feeling yeah. like you need to do everything, I think that's when things get a little bit wild. Cause then I don't know, I just start to feel like then nobody gets comprehensively served, addressed, supported mm. in a way that they would have had maybe just people just come together. Yeah. The network idea is a good one, I think, isn't it? Mm. If there are other organizations supporting, you know, Asian people in Bristol, then maybe you connect with them. I just sort of beaver away on my own, supporting whatever. And it's yeah. quite organic slash haphazard combination of who people I trust point me to and who come to me. Yeah. I am challenged by yeah. what you're saying to think. I mean, that question of how do you use a white influence or... Yeah. You know, the little resource I have, which still is difficult for me to get my head around because I have a very modest upbringing Mm. and, you know, working class kind of quite struggling. And then I found myself in a successful business. I mean, I created a successful business, but its financial success wasn't its goal. That was a byproduct. So it's been very easy to say, oh, well, look, here's this byproduct over here. Let's try and use that as frugally as we've used. Do you think that your background makes you more sensitive to other people's social... Does it keep you more attuned to that? I think so, because I just still really feel the anxiety, you know, the anxiety Mm. of debt, the anxiety of not really knowing how I was going to pay for Christmas presents, you know, the anxiety of not knowing where I was going to live. I don't want to over-dramatize, but, you know, it's like, do you have rich parents to fall back on? You know, that's one of the tests when people claim poverty. Like, no, (laughs) no, there was no one going to really bail me out. So I feel like I've felt that in myself. And so when that went away in my 40s, you know, there was a moment of relief and then looking around and feeling for the people that feel that. I feel like there might be something a bit weird about you in that when I think about people who have modest beginnings who then acquire wealth I often think the next thing they do is try to hold on to that wealth because of that anxiety this focus of giving away these like big sums of money for social issues because I guess I just think about and maybe this is me and my judgments and assumptions but I often think that when people don't come from wealth when they acquire it Mm -hmm. they fear being back where they were before and therefore sit on it hold it won't let it go any place. Yes, I think that might be a weird thing about you. Well, <laughs> sorry to say. <laughs> a very good weird thing. Yeah, a good weird thing. But I have made sure 
Yeah. And I've made sure for my kids uh, that they're not going to have the experience that I did. Yeah. So I don't think I'm an exception in that yeah. regard. But we're back to the values conversation. And I, I think that's what marks each of us out, isn't it? Yes. As yeah. Yeah. Individuals and as people is what matters most. And I mean, I wanted to be a missionary at nine years old. <laughs> <laughs> so I did want to be a good person. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, certificates and you get that you get the you get the certificate for a good white person from a brown person so oh, welcome. i'm handing out stickers to people so <laughs> thank you so much yeah, thank you so much interesting conversation yeah. extraordinary pair and i i you know i i do feel like i've had a lot of air time and you know i can't help but center myself because it's a kind of a weird exploration in each yeah. conversation yeah. yeah it's like oh i haven't sorted out my own thoughts yet yeah. <laughs> well, so thanks for giving that opportunity yeah, of course. And, you know, Lauren's got a really great thing that she says a lot, which is about assessing the balance. And there's this kind of like reflexive piece around centering and decentering and knowing when the moment is right to center oneself and then to take oneself away. And I don't think that's an easy thing. And we've talked to lots of organizations, lots of leaders about how challenging it is to do that. I don't think it's easy, but I think that you're thinking about it in the ways that are really helpful and healthy mm-hmm. and struggling with them and really helpful and healthy ways, which is just making me feel really good about white people in the world. (laughs) Well, what I'm taking away from this, given that it really, the honest really is, not just should be, is on white people, which is such a huge, (laughs) but you know, white people to address the imbalances, the inequalities that we've created and benefited and continue to benefit from. Yeah. So again, in a small way, how do I do more? Because that yeah. strikes me as something that I can do with authenticity. So that's the question I'm taking away. And I thank you both for that Ooh. stimulus. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Journey to Transformation. Leave us a five-star rating and a written review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Journey to Transformation is written and edited by us, Tia Rogers and Lauren Burrows. Our music comes from Praz Canal.